Pardes North America presents Greatest Hits, The High Holidays, a curated collection of premium high holiday content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to your Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur experience. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For more high holiday learning opportunities, visit pardes.org.il forward slash events. And now, Greatest Hits, The High Holidays. This time of year is a time for accountability, a time to remember, a time for mindfulness and awareness. Maimonides famously requires a reenactment of the scenario second time round in which we did the sin, which is always baffling. Why would we put ourselves in the same situation in order to prove that we are no longer going to transgress? Mindfulness the second time around, which will prevent the sin, suggests Maimonides. Why would someone be in the same situation? Because unresolved issues always reemerge in some form. Unconscious patterns, conflicts, problems pull us into the same moral and spiritual circumstances. And so the likelihood of our being in the same scenario more than once in our lives and being challenged to make a different choice when we find ourselves in the same scenario is really what um, this time of year is all about, you know, thinking about those places that we go. And Maimonides is quite correct that there's a good chance, even with something as serious as adultery, which is the example he brings, um, that someone who betrays or he or she betray their spouse once may very well find themselves in that same exact scenario. And true repentance is if you have the fortitude to stop as you engage in the same pattern of behavior and say no, this time I'm going to do it differently. And if I quote Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs, this idea that we are free and the choice is ours, which is emphasized by Moshe throughout the book of Dvarim over and over again, blessing or curse, good or evil, faithfulness or faithlessness, you decide, says Moshe. Never has freedom been so starkly defined, not just for an individual, but for a nation as a whole. That's something we understand because repeatedly as individuals, we are confronted by moral choices. And the question of what we do with those choices is ultimately what defines our condition as human beings. There's a wonderful excerpt from a book called Not Me by Michael Levine, a dialogue between a father and a son. It's actually a very interesting novel. And it turns out the father is a Nazi who disguises himself as a dead Jew and flees Europe and manages to make his way to Israel, and then I think to the United States, where he lives the life of an observant Jew. And the son only finds this out after he dies. I remember how once he tried to explain to me the meaning of repentance. I was playing with the fringes of his long, elegant talit. He smiled down at me. In Hebrew, he said, it means turning. Better, it means returning. It means to come back, Mikey, to come back to your true self. And then he laughed and pinched my nose. And what could be easier than that? So why do we have to do it every year? Because, my dear little one, there is no one true self. And that is why repentance can never end. And I think if I connect that to Maimonides, that ultimately every year we re-engage with ourselves at this time of year and we try to confront who we are. We try to remember what our true selves are. And we ultimately constantly find ourselves in uh, patterns and repeated conflicts and problems. Every year we need to not reinvent ourselves, but recognize who we really are. And, um, and that is a never ending process because every year we're a little different or we hope we're a little different. Um, what I'd like to talk about next is really the idea of tshuva because uh, 
the excerpt I just read pointed to that, that idea of returning to coming back to coming back to your true self, something as something we have to do every year. And really, there's a very powerful idea in Psachim 54a that repentance was embedded into the world even before the world was created. Seven things were created before the world was created, which is, of course, a wonderful play on the fact that the world was created in six days and the seventh day was the day of rest. So there are seven things, one for every day of the week, one for every day of the creation, uh, that were already created before the world was created, the Torah being number one, but repentance being number two. And so this idea that man was created in such a way, as Jonathan Sachs says, in a way that we continuously choose, means that already God builds into the blueprint of the world, builds into the blueprint of our human condition, the potential to return. Because we're always going to need to return. We're always going to distance ourselves and always then come back. And whether it's in relationships with one another or more fundamentally in our relationship with God, that is part of the way the world was created even before the world was created. And as a result, that was something that God expected or built into the creation of man. And um, throughout the Midrash, there really is an attempt to understand why God creates man, why God desires man despite his imperfections. And I think that one of the things that God desires is this fluidity in the relationship that comes from the flaws of the choices man makes. And that the choices, the temptations, sinfulness, only through recognizing that what we have done is wrong, only in recognizing that we have gone distance from God and we want to return to God, can we bring godliness into the world in any cognitive way. And I'll quote Shai Held, who I once heard speak, um, talk about the fact that in Christianity, man's tragedy is that he will never know God and will never be able to follow or obey the will of God because of his innate sinfulness. He's quoting Martin Buber there. But he then quotes Heschel, who felt the tragedy is that man can imitate God and man can do God's will and come close to knowing God, but so often chooses not to. And so this idea, again, our choices have consequence, that our relationship with God lies in the choices we make to believe, to do, to submit, and that ultimately God himself is vulnerable to being brought into the world through our choices is, is a very interesting idea. Uh, and there is actually a midrash in Shemot Rabbah that strongly looks at God's dependency on man, trying to flesh out why God needs man and why God created man in his or her capacity to sin. And in this midrash, which is in midrash, uh, Shemot Rabbah 33.1, it starts off by talking about Vayikuli Truma, this idea of um, this is the offering you shall take. And it talks about God saying to Israel, there's a dialogue presented in which God says, I have sold you my Torah, but with it, as it were, I have also been sold, which is an astonishing idea. It invokes to some degree the image of slavery, that God sold us the Torah as the buyers. We have absolute power over what we do with the Torah. And because God is so connected to Torah, Torah belongs to God. God's being is embedded in the Torah, then God ultimately was sold with the Torah. And what this means is that we ultimately have the agency as to whether God and Torah 
are brought into the world, or I'll say it even differently, whether when we learn Torah, we remember God. I mean, ultimately, that is the power we have in, in, in buying the Torah, says this Midrash. And what God asks is, take me, take me, God, as the offering. Meaning I'm offering myself to you because I have sold you my Torah. And without you, my Torah won't have any meaning in the world. Without Am Yisrael, without the children of Israel accepting and practicing Torah, the Torah has no meaning. But ultimately, that even translates into without our accepting the Torah and seeing God's wisdom and God's word in the Torah, then ultimately, God himself will not be born into the world. And so I think that is... Um, a very powerful idea that the need that the idea that God's presence is diminished if we fail to accept God, if we fail to accept Torah, we fail to learn about God through Torah, fail to submit to God through doing the mitzvot. Um, and without this model of both this duality of accepting Torah, accepting mitzvot, searching for God, and God then revealing to us, then really there's uh, there's no presence of God. And I would like to suggest that the model of sin and repentance is ultimately an acknowledgement that man will distance himself, man will transgress, man will reject, but God gives a gift of tshuva at the end of Devarim to return. He says to B'nai Yisrael in chapter 30, V'shavta el Adonai Elohecha, v'atata shuv, v'shamata b'kol Adonai, and you will return, and you should return and return. Uh, God will allow you to return. Without that mechanism, then um, ultimately there'll be no growth in the relationship between man and God because the free choice I presented uh, in the beginning of this talk, this idea that we can choose, that Moshe says, choose good, choose life, but ultimately understands that we can choose bad and we can choose evil, means that we must have a mechanism that allows us to return when we um, exhibit the, the frailties that are so uh, particular to the human condition. Man's spiritual growth, in essence, brings God into the world. God is where man lets him in. And the concept of tshuva, of repentance, is central to our relationship with God and plays a very significant role, um, both in the book of Devarim, which is read at this time of year, and in the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The hallmark of our relationship with God is that every moment contains a blessing and a curse. Everything depends on our seeing our lives with clear eyes, seeing the potential blessing in each moment, as well as the potential curse, choosing the former for swearing the latter. The challenge is what to do when despite all of our potential, we make the wrong choices and have to live with the consequences. And really into that vacuum, into that space, that's where the idea of um, reconciliation through tshuva, through repentance, the idea of God giving atonement in the wake of repentance is so uh, redolent. And there are several midrashim I want to uh, present because I think they really emphasize God's desire for our walking across this bridge I'm calling repentance. In Yalkut Shimoni, Psalms 25, wisdom was asked, what should be the punishment for the sinner? She answered, let evil pursue the sinner. Prophecy was asked, what should be the punishment for the sinner? She answered, the soul that sinned shall perish. The Torah was asked, what should be the punishment for the sinner? She answered, let him bring a sacrifice and be atoned for. The Holy One, blessed be he, was asked, what should be the punishment for the sinner? He answered, let the sinner repent and he will find atonement. And so this idea that wisdom, prophecy, and the Torah 
suggest that there must be some sort of accountability, some sort of consequence, some sort of punishment, or at the very least, a sacrifice to create atonement. And all God seeks is repentance. If the sinner repents, he will find atonement. There's another similar midrash in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Sanhedrin 10.2, when Menashe, one of the most heinous of the Israelite kings at the end of the first temple period, who really was instrumental in bringing about the exile and the destruction of the first temple, he wished to repent. The ministering angels wished to hide his prayer from God, so they closed all the windows to heaven. God, therefore, decided to bore a hole beneath his throne of glory in order to allow Menashe's prayer to enter. So much does he desire tshuva, true repentance. What I extract from that, those ideas, and particularly the last one about uh, the wicked repentance, the, the potential for a king as wicked as Menashe to repent, is that God continuously desires man's search for God. And when, wherever that search takes place, Wherever the person is when he makes the decision to search, to look for, to call out to God, God is willing to be called out to. And the final midrash I want to bring is uh, in the aftermath of the sin, after Cain kills his brother, murders his brother, Hevel, he says something. He says, after God confronts him, he says, my sin is too great to bear. Cain is paralyzed, as so often all of us are at moments when we realize how much work lies ahead of us to rebuild something that has ruptured, whether it's a relationship with a parent or with a child or with a friend, whether it's at work where we've made a mistake that has caused everything we do to unravel. Um, and so Cain, in the aftermath of murdering his brother, is absolutely paralyzed. He recognizes in a moment how great his sin is, and he feels there's no way forward. And so God, in that moment, in his kindness, gives Cain a mark of protection. And in the aftermath of that mark, he finds the ability to build a new life. In fact, the first thing he does is come in unto his wife and impregnate her. And then he goes on to build a city. But what allowed movement, and Cain will always bear the mark of his sin, but what allowed the movement is God extending a, 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 a hand. God both confronting Cain with sin and at the same time allowing him a bridge out so that he could begin rebuilding. In Breshid Rabbah, this idea is played with, 2213, Adam met Cain and asked, what was done in punishment of you? Cain replied, I vowed repentance and was granted forgiveness. Upon hearing this in self-reproach, Adam began to beat his face as he said, such is the power of repentance and I knew it not. Then and there, Adam explained, it is a good thing to confess to the Lord. One of the things Cain, who's the second sinner in our history, reveals to his father, Adam, who is the first, is that in the aftermath of sin and taking responsibility for sin, there is a way to avoid paralysis or circumvent paralysis in understanding that a door is open, a bridge is available, one can walk across it if one only has the courage to do so by beginning to rebuild even slowly through some sort of uh, act we'll call repentance, acknowledgement, accountability of sin, mindfulness, and then the work we need to do to change the trajectory of our behavior. Erica Brown, in a book she wrote, Return, Daily Inspiration for the Days of Awe, writes, Chuva must exist in concept, an act to offer a road out of sin, even before an act of sin is committed. The capacity to recalibrate and progress stands in relationship to the gravitational pull downwards. In other words, this really builds on the idea of psachim, that God created repentance even before he created the world and particularly before he created mankind, because it already has to offer a road out of sin 
in relation to the gravitational pull downwards of Sid. So it has to exist in concept even before anything else exists. There will always be rupture. And that's true for all relationships. The greatness of tshuva, of, of building it into the creation of the world or putting it at the end of Devarim before Moshe sends us off on our way to become an independent people is to create a model for reconciliation. And it is a model we confront in many different times and many different relationships. The idea that when we are distant, moving past the distance, overcoming the rupture to reconcile leads to a very powerful closeness and to really um, a new, uh, essentially a newness into the relationship that has more depth and uh, more connection. So a question that could be asked is, why do we only take the time to think about our relationship with God? Think about it deeply. Think about it with accountability and mindfulness and looking backwards and looking forwards at this time of year. And I think the structure of this kind of year is also a, a type of brilliance. We can't live in that space all the time where we're constantly second guessing or thinking or checking ourselves or and so on. We even see that, you know, January 1st, the new year, that one day where people take New Year's resolutions, they very often float away into nothingness. Um, because really one day a year where we look back and we say, oh, okay, I'm going to diet, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to be nice to my little sister, um, without any sort of anchor, it doesn't really go anywhere. And the, I think, brilliance of this time of year is that th there's a very strong anchor. We already start in Elul thinking forward towards Rosh Hashanah, whether it's through Slichot, um, whenever they start, whether it's through already beginning to blow the shofar, beginning to say uh, Le David Hashem Ori, the psalm that we say every day from Elul until um, the end of Sukkot, whether it's the fact that we continue this process, which is most heightened on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but we continue it from the first of Tishrei until the end of Yom Kippur. We continue it onward to another holiday that brings us into uh, connection with our relationship with God, the holiday of Sukkot, this idea that the doors of repentance aren't fully closed until the end of Hoshana Rabbah, which is at the very end of the Sukkot holiday. In other words, we create a framework that is not just one day a year, but a process that really escorts us. I'm going to even take it a little more backward from Tisha B'Av, from where we sit on the ground in utter dejection, utter desolation over um, the absolute rupture with God, and we start moving upwards from the 10th of Av through Elul into Tishrei until the end of Tishrei. The fact that we see this as a process and not just one day a year, a process that really spans two and a half months of the year, allows both a structure and a framework. So it's not overwhelming. It's not, well, every day I have to get up and do my accountability, but there's a time of year for this kind of framework of accountability and mindfulness. And the fact that it's not just a day, but a slowly building process that leads to a culmination on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then finally Hoshana Rabbah, where we also think about our accountability, um, is I think very reflective of how man grows. I'd like to quote Rabbi Alan Liu in a book, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. Every soul needs to express itself. Every heart needs to crack itself open. Every one of us needs to move from anger to healing, from denial to consciousness, from boredom to renewal. These needs did not arise yesterday. They are among the most ancient of yearnings, and they are fully expressed in the pageantry and ritual of the days of awe in the great journey we make between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. 
And what I'd like to conclude with is uh, a chorus from Anthem by Leonard Cohen, uh, who really had great lyrics to many of his songs. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We are created cracked. The universe is cracked. But the Shrina, the presence of God, leaks through the cracks, into the, leaks through the imperfections, um, because ultimately the healing comes through the cracks and bring us closer to God. And what I'd like to wish us all is that we take the time, this Rosh Hashanah, this Yom Kippur, this entire um, time of year, to be mindful of the cracks, to be mindful of the light, uh, to to build towards something a little bit different, to take a moment, think of Maimonides, and, and think about how we can make different choices and do things a little different, and try to connect to our true selves that we encounter this year on Rosh Hashanah. May we all have a happy and blessed New Year. Thank you for listening to Pardes North America's Greatest Hits, The High Holidays. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Visit pardes.org.il for more ways to learn with us. Thanks for listening.